Okay, so Good evening, everyone, and thank you for being here. I'm Craig Calhoun, director of the LSE, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this particular panel on challenging inequalities, but those of you who haven't been a part of the day-long event, to the overall conference, uh, which has been part of uh, uh, the launch of the International Inequalities Institute at LSE in a series of events over the um, academic year, which is drawing to a close. This remarkable new venture has been launched um, with a variety of more academic and more publicly oriented engagements with understanding inequalities emphatically in the plural, many different kinds of inequality working in different ways and intersecting in different ways and influencing all aspects of social life. This evening, our focus is challenging inequalities. All day, the conference has been examining different kinds of inequality. I think there have been some rather grim statistics and other accounts of increasing inequality and of the consequences of inequality. The focus for this panel is what can be done. How does one contest Inequality. How does one change social conditions? To what extent is this simply a matter of power? To what extent is it a matter of creativity or mobilizing other kinds of resources to be able to change inequality? We have three very distinguished and well-qualified panelists who bring different kinds of expertise and experience to this. Duncan Green will speak first is Senior Strategic Advisor at Oxfam Great Britain and a professor in practice in the International Development Department of the LSE. He's also an author as well as a person with very wide field experience. His book, How Change Happens, and From Poverty to Power, How Active Citizens in Effective States Can Change the World, are well worth attention. The second speaker will be Shami Chakrabarti, the former director of Liberty. I was sure I would forget to say former, but Shami has just made a transition from a remarkable period of leadership of one of the most important NGOs in the United Kingdom. Um, she, this is part of a National Council for Civil Liberties, and I think questions of civil liberties and the nature of rights will be part of her presentation tonight. Shami studied law at LSE and has been a part of uh, London activism for a very long time. She's also the author of the book On Liberty, not to be confused with the same title by John Stuart Mill. <laughs> and our third speaker, um, who will also bring us a video introducing some of her work, is Pamiza Mulanguana, who is currently the General Secretary of the Social Justice Coalition, this is a social movement organization that is challenging injustice, particularly in Cape Town, but with an agenda to focus on wider kinds of injustice in South Africa, including um, laws and policies that are key. She's an alumnus of the Building Bridges program within the Graduate School of Development and Policy and Practice at the University of Cape Town, um, and before that studied at the University of Western Cape. She's active, again, in a variety of movement and civil society forms of trying, as this panel suggests, to challenge inequality. After each of the speeches, um, the introductions, which will be relatively short, 
there will be a chance for the panelists to discuss and question each other, and then a chance for you to ask them your questions. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Craig. Um, I'm going to talk um, with my Oxfam hat on rather than my LSE hat on. And um, I'm going to talk about some of the thinking behind the current big Oxfam campaign called Even It Up on, uh, on inequality. Um, Oxfam's making a much bigger deal about inequality than it has done uh, in the past. Um, Previously, we'd focus much more on poverty, and I think it's quite interesting to reflect what you do differently when you work on inequality than when you work on poverty. For me, the big difference is that poverty is about the state of an individual. You're either poor or you're not. Inequality is essentially about relationships. It's about your position relative to other people, which inevitably involves a much bigger conversation about power and about politics. So I think inequality is a much richer place to start than poverty reduction. Even though the World Bank does its best to technocraticize inequality, it actually fails. Inequality is a much more political issue. And so I'm very happy that Oxfam is doing much more on inequality these days. Now, um, but we've been asked to talk about the nuts and bolts, because for those um, very impressive people who've sat through the day and have come for more this evening, we've had a lot of numbers, a lot of graphs, a lot of stats. Um, and as Craig was saying, some fairly pessimistic politics, I think. Um, so I wanted to give you some idea about what campaigning organizations like Oxfam are doing and how we understand the change processes and the mechanics of campaigning on an issue like inequality. Um, a lot of this draws from the book that Craig mentioned, How Change Happens, which isn't actually published yet, so unfortunately I, oh. I can't try and sell it to you, but I'll be back, don't worry. Um, uh, but it's looking at the theories of change that underline a lot of these uh, processes that Oxfam and other organizations work on. And I wanted to pick out three particular approaches. Um, the big picture one about framing, um, a particular one which is often neglected when people talk about change and talk about policies, which is critical junctures, win windows of opportunity. And then, because you have to, talking about the problem that the inequality debate has to some extent been captured by the economists and by income and wealth. Even good, good economists find it hard to get beyond income and wealth when they talk about inequalities, so I wanted to talk about that too. And I have about five and a half minutes left, I think. So, framing. Yeah, we're very proud of our framing. Every year at Davos, amazingly, we can do the same thing uh, and get just as many headlines each time. Someone's going to realize at some point. So I think this was three years ago. Um, uh, some people in our research team calculated and it didn't take that long that 85, the 85 richest people uh, on the planet earn the same as the half of the world's population, the poorest half. And this is wealth, okay? Now, this is what I call a killer fact. It probably would destroy any academic career if you came out and said this, because there'd be lots of caveats and what do you mean? What do you mean by wealth? What do you mean by measurement? You know? But actually, in terms of framing a narrative and getting people to think in a certain way, this has rocked Davos for three years in a row. We're now down to 62 people. Um, yeah, the number of, has, is coming down each year. And what you're raising is that there's an issue of extreme wealth and extreme unfairness. And that's all you're trying to do. Right? You're not trying to make a PhD out of it. You're framing a narrative. And, and in many ways, I think the big contribution of civil society organizations is often about the framing bit, the really early bit in the discussion, rather than all the detailed negotiation which follows when an issue gets more uh, into the public policy arena. So um, <clears throat> that's the first one, framing. Second one 
critical junctures. If there was one thing I wish campaigners would be uh, clearer on, it's um, the change is not continuous. It's not smooth. It doesn't happen according to your three-year or five-year plan. You bang your head against a brick wall and then suddenly something happens, right? The Panama Papers. So Oxfam launches uh, a campaign on tax havens. We're doing okay, we're doing okay. And then the Panama Papers happens and that changes everything because suddenly people who were before did not want to listen realize that they have to listen. People who didn't want to cover it in the media suddenly are looking for stories. And more broadly, what we heard uh, during the day, big crises, big shocks, is when uh, change kind of concentrates on those big moments. So wars, crises, scandals, failures, that's when the, 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 the tectonic plates shift in terms of political and social change. Now, campaigners have to work with that. They have to, you can't predict when these things are going to happen, but you sure as hell have to notice when they happen and respond as well as you possibly can. That may mean uh, rehashing research which was published previously and largely ignored. Yeah, one of the problems with uh, sort of campaigning researchers or campaigning academics is that the incentives do not really help you say, something's happened, I need to repackage all that stuff I did on tax three years ago and publish it and get it out there and then and try and make an, have an impact. There's no money in that, there's no incentives, there's no ref, you know, that, so you need to think about how you work with these critical junctures. And the third one is getting beyond income and uh, uh, income and wealth. Um, and the people who are arguing for this have managed to kill it by calling it intersectionality. Okay? <laughs> if you actually want to campaign on something, please don't call it intersectionality. Okay? Um, so there is a real problem with language and the way people frame, and that's kind of negative framing, I think, in terms of uh, what you're trying to do. But there's clearly an issue where the interlocking inequalities of gender, race, class, all work together, and we have to understand all of them, not just siphon off the bit, which is money. Uh, so... Uh, so, and we're struggling with this in Oxfam, to be honest. The inequalities campaign got very economicist early on, and we're now trying to bring it back to doing much more work on things like gender rights. And that's probably my seven minutes, right? Okay, You're getting close. There. Thank you. Shami Chakrabarty. Well, well, thanks very much. I'll stand on my tiptoes because... Um, because the problems of my intersectionality um, include a sort of uh, vertical deficit. <laughs> is, that, is that too much jargon for you, um, um, Duncan? I, I would have liked to have heard Duncan more because I was just getting into it because I too um, come at these issues really as an activist. When I was an undergraduate here at the LSE a very long time ago, I, um, I uh, was, as you heard, a law student and I had friends who were studying economics and I thought they were desperately clever people. It, I guess it was the numbers thing. I, I guess like lots of people growing up in Britain and probably elsewhere, I was a bit number blind. Words were, words were always fine, but numbers very difficult. And I can remember once talking to uh, a friend who was doing a master's here in, in, in economics who went on to... She's now a very senior civil servant. She had a distinguished career in the Treasury. I remember saying to her once, whilst we were here, why, why can't the cake just be just be cut into, into more equal pieces. And she turned to me and she said, oh, Shami, you're so sweet. <laughs> she said, you're so sweet, but you, but you don't understand that if you, if, if you cut the cake into, into more equal pieces, the, the cake gets smaller. 
<laughs> right. So that was my that was my that was the beginning and and that was my economics part of the <laughs> London School of Economics. Because I, the metaphysics of that was just too much. I'm mean, I'm no baker, as I, I must add. You know, I'm not a baker or an economist. But but surely the cake was a sum of its parts, and why couldn't it just be uh, distributed more fairly? But so so I sort of carried that sort of um, that disadvantage around with me for many years, and then the crash happened. And frankly, I stopped thinking that these economists were so bloody clever anymore. <laughs> right and decided that it was, t- it was time for, you know, we mortals who, who don't know all the jargon and, and don't know the metaphysics of cake-making or cake-cutting to, um, to actually get engaged um, with something that is really about, ab- ab- about, people's, about people's lives. And, of course, it, you know, during the, sim- during the same period, um, I'd been an activist. Now, the, the, the activism that I was working on was about, was about human rights and, and, and essentia- essentially civil and political um, rights rather than social and economic ones. And so, of course, you know, I'd often been challenged about that. You know, aren't you a bit of a sort of... Aren't you a sort of modern-day Emmeline Pankhurst? You know, aren't you... You know, you're not prepared to look at poverty, let alone inequality. You're, you know, you're you're just bothered about whatever it is, stop and search or detention without charge and so on. And, of course, I had a particular job to do. I had particular coalitions to build and and, and liberties across party, non-party organisation. I don't apologise for that, but I'm a little freer now. Um, but the truth is, I've never thought that there's a genuine distinction between um, civil and political rights and, and social and economic rights, because for me, human rights values and human rights discourse have to be about delivering and protecting and celebrating everything that human beings need to, not just to survive, but, but hopefully to, to, to thrive. And when people present me with this sort of false dichotomy between between um, the social and economic rights and the civil and political rights in, for example, the Universal Declaration. I try to sort of bring it down to basics and bring it down to, to the home situation. And I say, you know, if, if you had um, a family member or a guest to your, to your home um, for dinner and to perhaps stay overnight, <laughs> would you say to them, well, you're very welcome to, to, to my home and you're very welcome to join us for, for, for dinner where you can share in the meal as long as you don't speak at the table. You can, you can have one or the other. And you can, and you can go to the guest room and, and spend the night with us, um, but, and you'll get the warm bed and the shelter of being in our guest room as long as um, the bathroom door is open when you use it and the bedroom, because you're going to have no speech, you're going to have no privacy, you're going to have none of the civil and political rights, but it's okay because you're going to be fed and watered and sheltered. And, of course, that's complete nonsense when you bring it down to, um, when you bring it down to real people's lives and how they treat each other in, in small places close to home, to quote to quote Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, and I suppose my first point really then is that storytelling is so incredibly important. And I know that you've had a fascinating day and you've learned so much about inequality and some of it's been quite depressing. And I understand you did have a, a discussion about the impossibility of taxation and we mustn't suggest it and people will never vote for it. I, I've never been you know, into councils um, of despair um, and the reason for that is not just my own career in activism where sometimes the good guys win, 
and where I was told that we would never defeat identity cards and we would never, in a climate of terrorism and fear, defeat 90 days and 42 days detention without charge. And, and these are not popular campaigns when you begin because these people are terror suspects. These are not cuddly women who are like men only cheaper. These are, you know, these are terror suspects by definition. But, but in my experience, it is possible to tell stories in such a way as you can create um, empathy and identification and capture people's imagination um, or, or sometimes just present alternative policies and alternative arguments in a way that, that connects with people. And I've always been of the opinion that I'm not so clever and I'm not so worthy. And if I have um, some values and ideals, um, they're probably shared by, um, by other people too. And it seems to me that in the context of inequality, I was, that's why I was so fascinated by, by, by Duncan's point about let's move away from poverty, which is what poor people over there suffer, to inequality, which is something that engages everyone on the planet to some extent. Um, then you've suddenly got this potential to engage with far more people in your, in your campaign for change. You, you, cre you create not just empathy but potentially identity and solidarity with a much much bigger group of people who are not the 85 on the planet they're everybody else so if for example the proposition is that there are you know a handful of people living on planet zog and um and you know running around on their lear jets uh the super rich the 85 or the 62 or whatever the the number is now duncan if that is the case and that can be demonstrated that his killer fact is a fantastic argument for not, not just the poorest, who are by definition disempowered and, and disenfranchised, but for all sorts of people in the middle. Daily Mail readers. <laughs> right? Well, think about it. After the, you know, after the crash, you know, bankers were the new Muslims, weren't they? Do you remember that period? Do you remember the Daily Mail's campaign to, um, to take the knighthood from Fred the Shred? Do you remember? It went on for days, right? It went on for days. It was on the front page of the Daily Mail every day. It was like it was a proper lynch mob. It was, you know, and then he, his knighthood was taken from him and the front page was Fred Shredded. <laughs> now, I'm, now, to me, that's just, you know, that's token populism. That's not doing anything for, that's not doing anything really for, for inequality, but it does demonstrate that, um, you know, the point that he made about crunch moments and taking an opportunity, and the opportunity will go one way or another. The, the opportunity that's created by a crisis as in 2008, or by the Panama Papers, or by whatever the next moment, inevitable moment is, will, will be taken by, by, by one movement or another. And it seems to me right now, just as I wind up, that, um, that the anger around the state of the world, predominantly inequality, but not just inequality, other issues um, that are related to it, such as, such as uh, war and peace and security, um, personal and national, um, issues to do with the warming planet, the, the, this crisis point on our planet will, will lead to popular movements of one kind or another. 
um, and they will either be nationalistic and xenophobic and far-right popular movements or they will be um, the popular movements that I suspect, I suspect, don't know, that most people in this room would, um, would like to, to, to see prosper. And so given that, that that choice is pretty much inevitable, it seems to me, I know which side I want to be on. And I, and I believe that you know, the kind of discourse that Duncan's opened up and, you know, the, 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 you know and, and not assuming the orthodoxy that you can't argue for tax and you can't create empathy and you can't create solidarity. Move away from that to creative storytelling, to building solidarity between, between different causes. You know, socialism, feminism, internationalism, um, um, rather than creating, you know, division, you know, being divided and ruled... Um, and competing for victimhood, um, I believe that if we think in that way, in terms of broader popular political movements, um, there's a lot that can be achieved. Uh, I, um, when I was a child, a fairly political child, I think, always, I thought that I would never live to see um, liberation in South Africa. I didn't think it would happen in my lifetime. I thought I would never see the fall of the Berlin Wall. I thought I would never see relative peace in Northern Ireland, let alone same-sex marriage promoted by a Conservative Prime Minister. <laughs> right? So in the light of all of that, surely a greater inequality given that it would benefit most people on the planet is, uh, is easy to achieve by comparison. Thanks. Mlangwana. Um, good evening, everyone. I thought uh, in order to talk about inequality in South Africa, I should give um, some examples of some of the work my organization is doing. And I'm sure a lot of people hear about South Africa and hear about Cape Town, how we're a beautiful country. But hopefully, after the talk today, after I introduce this work, you'll see how Cape Town itself is a city that has two countries in it. And so I'm going to give two examples, which hopefully are going to highlight some of the work that we're doing um, the challenges um, or the strategies we're using as a movement to address inequality, not to address, but to, as an attempt. And I think I like when you were finishing off to say um, the problem is huge, but we must be uh, optimistic that it's not all um, gloom and end of the day. So I'm going to play this uh, video, it's like nine minutes, and I'll talk a bit after it to just add on some of uh, the examples that we're doing. Uh, so... I think while we're trying to fix the sound, um, I can go through my slides to actually, which was an addition to, to, to the video. Um, and um, yeah, like I said, I'm from a social movement which is based in Cape Town. Um, and the video is going to tell us a bit of the work that we're doing on sanitation. But some of our work is also trying to address um, safety and justice in communities in which we work in. And the reason I wanted to start with the video is going to show you the context. So this is a black community we're working with. Um, which uh, obviously its geography is affected by the history of apartheid, where a lot of black communities were shifted further and further away from the city. And so when you hear about Kalicha, you hear a lot of challenges with safety. I know a lot of people who might have been to Cape Town, they don't dare to go to the Cape Flats or Kalicha because of the safety concerns that people raise. But one of the interesting things that um, our members and all of us have experienced is that there's a lot of cases of murder, of rape, of, 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 of gender-based violence and hate crimes. And these are cases that can happen anywhere. 
Uh, but the way the state or uh, the criminal justice system deals with these cases is actually different from one context to another. And this is what the problem we are trying to challenge. And so in a lot of cases, you see a child being raped, but the context in which in Kailicha, the police deal with it differently than they would in an affluent area when it became spay, would be roundabout. And so sometimes there's no even visible policing, so people in these communities don't even get visible police. Um, sometimes police even refuse to open cases. Courts drag years for cases to be um, completed. Um, and so there's a lot of inefficiency with the state. So we have courts, we have police, but these services are not coming to the people that need it. And so what we did as an organization was to gather all the evidence of the cases we're supporting and actually use the very same constitution which should protect all of us in the country and lobbied for a commission of inquiry um, which looked at why... Uh, let's continue with the slides. Yeah, continue with the slides. Um, yeah. And so once we've, um, we were lobbied for the Commission of Ukraine, and again, this was a struggle for social movements, poor communities trying to hold government to account. And so we faced with political, uh, you know, fighting the, the political elite, which is also the leaders, the minister, and the premier, and also the, po the, the politics of the province and the national government of South Africa. So we're faced with all these um, challenges where there's people on the ground that need safety now and that needs justice at the moment. And so, but one of the important things that we got from the commission was information. Data that was never available, was never public. Um, and that data that speaks to how the South African government allocate resources of the police. In essence, they're still allocating it the same way the apartheid government was allocating resources. And so the other graph on my left um, really speaks to when we look at the crime statistics of South Africa every year, there's always um, nine sort of like the top ten meta precinct, which is uh, cities or police stations that have the highest rate of crime, whether it be murder, rape, contact crimes, um, aggravated robbery, and so forth. And those are the, the, the areas that are, are like purple, not very good with colors, those are the areas that are purple, and those are areas which will always, every year, have the highest rate of crime, including murder. But when we look at the resources that these communities have, every year they actually have the least resources in the country. So when you look at the police-to-population ratio, it's always the least, and the question is like, why? Why are we continuing to allocate resources in a very skewed manner, whereas we know where are the people affected? And when we talk about inequality, it's inequality not saying, we're saying we must take all the resources and investing it in the highest murder precinct, but it's to say, can we allocate resources in a very, um, in a way that is fair and distribute it in a way that is fair. And then this is just like, just a graph of some of the information we have from the commission. And I think the reason I thought I should talk to this is because had, had it not been for the Commission of Inquiry, which we advocated for, this is information that our state would still be sitting on. This is information that is not public. This is information that they've been using to allocate resources. Um, and on that side, again, it's the top um, murder precinct um, in the country. Um, and this one is the most safest areas. I'm sure many of you have been to Cape Town, have been to Kemp's Bay, to Claremont, um, uh, to Simonstown. And when you look at just how numbers are just thrown out, 
the most safest areas get a large number of resources compared to the highest, um, to the most unsafe areas which receive the least resources. And for us, we've been asking, but if we want to tackle crime, why aren't we investing the right resources? Why aren't the people in Kailicha, when they march for uh, a child that was raped, aren't they listened the same way when a, 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 a one child every 10 years is killed in Kems Bay? And so we're always trying to raise all these, these, these cases, but at the same time make recommendations in terms of what is it that must be done in terms of uh, policy. And then can I go to my video? I think we can um, stop here. And I was hoping, um, leading from the discussion we had today, this will show how um, we're talking about inequality at a broader scale, but there's also inequality, you know, that focuses on countries and specifically what happens in communities. And a lot of organizations are trying to challenge some of these inequalities, but the barriers and the challenges are, are related to so many different things, like political power, but also the level of, um, you know, this, these are the voices of the poor people and therefore they're not important and they shouldn't be listened. And so I'm hoping that gives a bit of what we're doing and an idea of um, that it's not all gloom. There is hope some people are trying to address the challenges. Okay, we should be ready for some good discussion. Let me recap high points, just remind you, since we've had a series of compelling talks, that Duncan put forward the importance of what we're doing here in looking at inequality, not only poverty, as was often the frame, urges to get beyond income and wealth and thinking about this, and talked about the importance of both framing and critical junctures as ways in which activism could move forward. Shami made, I think, a crucial point, um, echo by whom, about optimism um, and the kind of liberation of activism that comes from believing that it is possible to do something um, from the outset. She also talked about storytelling and about how much closer the issues of, of, of civil liberties and social rights are than is sometimes portrayed. And um, Vameza, uh called our attention to inequality in access to information, inequality in safety, inequality in services, which may map onto inequality um, in income and wealth, but are not, are, can be approached in and of themselves and um, uh, directly for action. Um, and also the struggle to use available channels like the budget process and empower ordinary people to participate in that. So we've got some um, really important perspectives on the table. Let me begin by asking our panelists a question, and I'm also going to invite them to talk, ask each other a question in this. And that's, why is so much action and discontent and unhappiness, partly with issues of inequality, channeled right now into what we might call populist kinds of responses. How, how can we get some of this energy, which reflects genuine, genuine discontent, linked to the kinds of more concrete issues um, in some ways that are important and, um, and allow for improvements in uh, reducing inequality? Any thoughts? Well, I think, I think Duncan sort of sowed the seeds of the answer in his presentation, actually, when he talked about crunch points and what you do with them. Because you ju if you just leave them and leave the 
orthodoxy that led to that crisis and don't respond um, not just with optimism but with actually a bit of radicalism then you've missed, an op- you've missed an important opportunity and people who are discontented will go somewhere else. So take something like the crash of 2008. Um, I, I, maybe it was just my experience, but I didn't hear articulated to me on the British left the, 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 the radicalism that I would have expected to follow that particular moment. Um, but that doesn't mean the discontent wasn't there. So, 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 so I was saying it in a slightly light-hearted way before, but my point is semi-serious. You know, the Daily Mail was prepared to vent its anger against Fred the Shred, which we know is, is, is nonsense because taking, some, taking one man's knighthood is not going to change a system that has led to, um, you know, to that crisis. But, but in a sense, there was, there, was more, um, there was more venting of anger and uh, righteous indignation and... And, and in a sense almost radicalization on the right than on the left that had bought into this whole orthodoxy of you can't tax the rich and nobody will vote for it. And, 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 and just to finish, I'm banging on too much. I, I'm sitting here in my alma mater. It is the London School of Economics and Political Science and set up by the Webs, and it's a wonderful project. But nonetheless, there's a danger sometimes, I think, in making everything too scientific and therefore, when a scientist tells you that, um, that you cannot ta- tax the rich or that people will not vote for taxation, you, t- you treat it as a, as a physical science. You, 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 mm-hmm. you treat it as a sort of um, natural law or physical science and don't realise that, that political change is, is art as well as science and activism. And, and we, we need to challenge orthodoxies that sometimes become embedded in this pseudo-scientific environment. Don't, don't throw anything, please. This one. Duncan. Yeah, um, so I'm always suspicious of the word populism. It's like sort of neoliberalism. It's kind of populism is someone who's popular and I wish they weren't sometimes, but that's okay. Um, um, <laughs> but, but there was a really interesting uh, moment in the, in the conversation. Many, but there's one that's relevant to this, which is this idea that the reason why inequality suddenly started going up in the 70s was, was because the social cohesion and the acceptance of sacrifice by elites born out of World War II takes about a generation to run out of steam, and then they just get greedy. Um, and that that's when things started to go wrong. And I thought that was, that was really interesting. I hadn't heard that argument mm. before, and it kind of made a certain sense to me. And then I was also reading Tony Blair saying yesterday, I no longer understand politics. So, <laughs> so put those two things together... Put those two things together, and I think what you have is, coming back to your question, Craig, is that the sort of the managerial approach to social democracy that was born out of Mm -hmm. World War II um, Mm. has run out of its kind of objective basis, but the centrist politicians haven't noticed yet. And the people who've noticed are the people who are outside the centre ground, and they're the populists of all sides. Now, mm. I happen to quite like some of the populists, but, mm-hmm. um, but the, I think that, that's the underlying. It's this, you know, the, the social democracy hasn't got over the end of Fordism, and that's just the sort of underlying problem to a lot of these, these questions. Um, yeah. I think in, in our context, certainly, there, there's a lot of questions, and I think we, we say this with the provincial government and the national government, there's a lot of questions on the political will um, that people don't act, not because of lack of resources or lack of 
decisions too, but it's better not to. For example, when we challenge the city of Cape Town or the province around issues of safety and informal settlements, and the people who are affected in Cape Town are black people and colored people and the poorest of the whole chain. And so when we're raising these issues, it, it certainly affects the rhetoric of that they are a perfect city. And I think it's the same way when we challenge the national government. And so I think it's, it's sort of like an easy... I don't want to say escape, but it's an easy way to dismiss, mm -hmm. as an attempt to dismiss what uh, people may say. And, and obviously it goes in, in many different ways. So I think mm -hmm. it's... And is an instance of that, I noticed in the, in the video, um, the woman who was uh, speaking about and dismissing the, the submission, sort of saying, you are acting to please your foreign donors, mm -hmm. which is a sort of scapegoat, but a, a, a dismissive uh, treatment, marginalization, but relying on a kind of claim about national authenticity that is itself pernicious sometimes and all that. The, um, well, let me try another. I, I um, want to encourage, and I'm about to go to the floor in this, but encourage you to ask, our theme is, is challenging, how effectively we can challenge. And um, how do you each see the, the relationship between trying to change public discourse and attitudes in a broad way, getting people to see what is framed by the, um, the point on gender that, that Duncan put up, for example. So we are changing a broad set of, of thoughts. And trying to target particular policies, uh, trying to get very concrete, demonstrable achievements in, in very local policies. Is the, what's the relationship? How do you relate the broad public to the sort of insider game of sometimes tangible policy writing in your different contexts? Yeah, uh, this is a hobby horse. Thank you, Craig. Um, <laughs> so I th I've been increasingly thinking that activists in the north, I will argue, uh, I'm not going to talk more generally, uh, are far too hung up on policies and then far insufficiently thinking about norms and politics. Um, and it's partly because you want to be in the, in the room. It's partly because we have to be able to measure and attribute impact and all the kind of pressures on you to demonstrate results. So you want to be right down the end of the policy funnel when something changes, when actually, I think in terms of activism, when I look back over what activists have achieved over the last 20 or 30 years, some of the really big changes are on norms. It's on how do we understand our fellow human beings, whether they are women, children, the disabled, there's those big social norms. What it is to be human are, I think, some of our biggest achievements. Very hard to attribute, very hard to mm. prove, very hard to put in your funding application, but actually really important. So the more we get sucked into the wonkery, the little, the, the, I'm really clever, I can understand the climate change negotiations yeah. end of activism, um, the more we lose that sense of we should be just changing the way people see each other and themselves. Um. I'd agree with that, because having had a pop at, you know, to some extent, having had a little pop at the academy, we're right to look at ourselves as, as, as activists and that, uh, and that capture, actually, that can, the capture that can happen. I, um, I, I'm going to use the Make Poverty History movement just as an example. Is that all right to do? Um, as long as you're not nice about it. Well, look, I'm, I'm looking at that as an well, example. From, you know, nice I, I'm way. looking at that from the outside as a potential, you know, obviously um, did some very good work, made a big impact. So, um, we've got celebrities, we've got people marching, you know, it, it's all looking good. And I just had this moment when I thought, tomorrow the politicians will be on the same march. 
the politicians of whom you're making the demand will now be marching with the people making the demand and this isn't going to end well. <laughs> right? And where everybody's, everybody's cuddling everybody on the sofa and, you know... You know, and by the way, it was the politicians who he, he weren't just promising to make poverty history; they were going to make liberty history as well simultaneously. But that's a that's a that's a beef of that's a beef of mine. That's not your that's not your fault. So I think you're right about we can all fall into the trap of um, of um, lowering our expectations and telling our funders or our boards or our members, well, we achieved that tiny little change and we were in the room. You know, I know. Um, charity and NGO chief execs who measure their outputs by how many ministerial meetings they've had, right? And you've just, you know, the poverty of expectation. And I think you're right. If we're talking about broad popular movements for change, yes, some people have to go and do some parliamentary lobbying. I've done a bit of it myself, but people also have to be on the streets. While we were watching your film, Duncan said to me, um, we don't have enough singing on British demonstrations. We have a lot of singing. To which I said, any more, because I'm obviously older than he is. Um, mm. but, um, but it's actually a serious point. What does, a, what does a popular movement look like? What does a successful campaign for radical change look like? Yes, it involves some, some, some lobbying and some legislation and some drafting of amendments, but it also involves you know, demonstrations, social media, information, you know, the, the work that you did on actually getting the statistics. We still don't have enough of that. We've had equal pay legislation in this country for how many years, but we don't have audits so that we can actually go into every workplace and, and compare the salary, the secret salaries of the men and the women. So, great, we've got this lovely equal pay legislation, but no way to enforce it. You know? mm. um, um, storytelling, uh, law, enforcement of law, um, going back and fighting back. It, and, and I think we need to be more generous with each other about the different roles that people play and how... Um, you know, so, so to, you know, to give some credit to the Occupy movement as well as to, you know, nice boys in nice suits um, who are, you know, who get elected for the for various parties. Anyway, I'll shut up now. Um, what was the question? Oh, sorry. <laughs> What's the relationship between the broad politics of changing people's attitudes I- and the insider game of changing policy? I, I think certainly um, I'm going to talk obviously in, in my context as one one thing that I think is missing from a lot of policy discussions is the very same people that are affected. And I think from our work, we've always tried to say, listen to the people that are on the ground. And meaningful engagement is very important. Understand people's experiences and think that this is a criticism of some research studies where you study people from the outside, but you actually don't know the experiences of the people inside. And I think this is a very important voice. A lot of the times, it's, it's, it's not listened to. It, it speak, it's heard to speak, but it's mm-hmm. not really understood for what it is that it's saying. Um, and I think policy, and I think this is how we've also approached work, is that you want to develop or you want to improve the immediate circumstances in in a community, you know, improve sanitation now. But how do you strategically as a movement think as to what policies could impact this community today, tomorrow, and other communities like it? And so strategically thinking as to how do we influence policies from the outside, but also lobby people from the inside? Because there's people who are willing to talk to you Mm -hmm. behind closed doors, but they can't talk to you publicly. And so using all those tactics to actually try and, 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 and engage. But I think some people question the, 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 the way social movements use the law and the courts and litigation. And I think it's a very important 
um, you know, it, it's, a, it's very important because it gives people something to clench on to hold leaders to account. But at the same time, we should be worried of the level of civil society organizations having to go to court to actually get um, development or to get certain injustices addressed because it says something about the society in which we're in, that people talk, they're not listened to, and therefore the last option they have is actually to go to court. So I think it's a, to influence policy it, and, and, and those challenges is a combination of different things, but I, I, I do not think it, it can happen without the people who are affected directly engaging in the issue. In a way, we'll have brilliant policies, but don't speak to the problem that, that people seem or need yeah. to, to be addressed. So let me ask one last question, and then we'll open it up. My last question is, is about money. Um, to what extent are foundation grants and donations and international funding um, helping the various liberal progressive funders? To what extent are they domesticating and de-radicalizing? Um, what's the relationship between organizations that depend on funding and have employees who depend on having salaries to eat and have that agenda, and wider activism or activism of other kinds of groups um, where um, there's less likely to be that kind of funding behind it, where there's not the grant application, um, where there's um, just the group of people who begin to do things? Well, I suppose I can speak more freely now because I'm not, I'm de-institutionalised in a way. Um, I, I think the answer is um, there's got to be room for everyone and there's got to be some professionalism but without losing the, the volunteer spirit. That's the, that's the, the tightrope, I think, that, that professional activists mm. need to, to walk. But, but you can't build, you know, a broad-based uh, popular movement for, for radical change just with um, professionals. But you can't but you won't achieve the kind of change that we want to achieve just on the streets. So there's got to be a sort of mutual, mutual respect. And, um, and, and also, you know, we have to be generous. We have to be able to disagree about particular tactics and particular campaigns and not think that anybody owns the... the there's all that sort of inevitable um, human stuff yeah. that you get, goodness me, in political parties, let alone broader, um, broader um, popular movements. With funding, um, there are... With big foundations and grants, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, there are you know people do it in different ways. Some people become a bit controlling. Um, some people become vanity funders, um, and some people don't. Some people are you know genuinely take that grant and go and do something creative and important with it. Um, but I, um, but I still, and, and some people encourage activists to get into a kind of dance of deception where you're, you know doing campaigns that you didn't really need to do because um, but you but again I, my advice would to anybody running a you know a, an NGO or, or a charity would be to try and spread your income streams as much as you can so that you're not in anybody's anybody's pocket I guess yeah, diversify not just get more yeah, yeah. um yeah I, I think something that always bothers me is this uh, talk every time when social movements go out to the streets like you funded by, you know, foreign governing, mm. governments and stuff. And it bothers me because a lot of our governments are funded by the very same foreign governments sometimes. Sure. And no one, no one is questioning what the exactly. intent is. And so my question has always been don't take people that are in social movements as if they're vacuums, they can't negotiate the terms of what is it that they want, the same way governments probably negotiate the terms. And I think 
a lot of ways we know that there's a lot of social movements, especially in the South African context. People might know of Treatment Action Campaign. Mm. We did amazing work mm. in relation to HIV and AIDS. But obviously because um, funding sort of dried out on HIV and AIDS in South Africa specifically, they faced a lot of challenges. And so now they, they face such a challenge of having to rethink their strategy. But I think the, the question for us, which is a lesson for everything, is whatever we're doing today, you must ensure that you create a, a cadre of leaders um, that whether there's funding today or not, but they can be able to use the same skills in addressing other challenges, mm -hmm. but not run an organization just to maintain the funding, but it should address something that is of a need. But if you invest on, on creating the right skills and the right capacity on community members so that if funding runs out, those people have the um, ability to be able to, to use those skills in challenging other inequalities mm -hmm. that they may run off. Um, yeah, but yeah, I... Good. Good, yeah. i just add a couple of things. One, I mean, there was a, the, 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 the woman saying these foreign stooges right. uh, in the film was funny, and uh, not that dangerous maybe in, Elsa, in, in South Africa, but in many countries mm -hmm. people are saying that, and it's really dangerous. So yeah. mm -hmm. on funding, I think funding is a really big issue. One of the things which I wish we had done more of is actually helping local organisations actually develop local sources of revenue so they, don't, so they can't be painted as that. And right. we've not done it. There is no fundraisers without borders. There's a clowns without borders. <laughs> yeah. There's a lawyers without borders. There's no fundraisers without borders. And that seems like a massive oversight. And just to be clear, by dangerous, you mean something that hasn't come here, which is they're put in prison, they're shot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mean dangerous in very serious yeah, the ways. The euphemism is yeah. civil society space yeah. is closing. And that means someone's waiting outside your house yeah. when you go home and you're taken away. So that kind of stuff is getting worse and worse. Governments are shaped. Uh, uh, sharing and swapping legislation, yeah. and one of the things they target is foreign funding. Yep. So we do have to find a way to actually help reduce Absolutely. that risk. But can we also turn... I was thinking when you were talking about... Oh, and, and the video about the foreign funders and whatever, South Africa was a country that we all... You know, we were all engaged now way in that struggle and surely the, you know, surely the birth of modern South Africa... Um, comes out of internationalism, right? So the idea that now people with political power in South Africa would say that when, when, when the same people that were part of the anti-apartheid movement all over the world are wanting to fund your work, that is somehow suspect. I think maybe that's a little history lesson that, that some people need to, to remember. We don't bother with them anymore. Like, that, that's a... <laughs> That's a, that's a problem, but like there's there's no merit to that argument because um, we the, the one interesting thing is that a lot of organisations we're very transparent in terms of where we're getting our money, whereas we can't say the same about political parties and about some. So we, we don't even bother to argue with them because we feel like they know that, but it's just a, a way of running away from mm. taking responsibility of what they can do and sort of in an attempt to dismiss what um, you know people are raising. Okay. Speaking of raising things, it's your turn to raise some questions for this. So we've got several people. There are stewards in red shirts. Wait for the microphone to get you, to you. And when you speak, please say who you are. So let's go first to Nikki Lacey, who is three seats in in about the fourth row. We have only one microphone running around. The room. Okay. Okay, good. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks, thank you all so much for a really stimulating and really quite compelling discussion. I think my, my question is primarily for Fumeza, 
Um, but it sort of builds on what's happened with all three of you and indeed Craig's questions. Um, because um, you, one of the things that was so compelling about your presentation, the talk and the video, was the way, it, to use Shami's nice metaphor, it brought the art and the science together. So you had this fantastic campaign. You had a sort of unanswerable policy like nobody could be against what you're arguing for. You had a, a, a campaign that had everything. You had a lot of organization, you had humor, you had energy, you had courage. And then you showed us very painfully how there was a deafness in the system. So my question is, to put it in your terms and to go to politics, as Duncan said, as opposed to the policy, how do you get your people inside? Is that possible? You know, we were all so totally moved by... I will never forget the day when I listened to, on the radio to the reports of people queuing to vote for the to exercise their right to vote for the first time in South Africa. What, is there a further stage to your struggle to get some of your people inside that city hall? Good. Okay, let me remind you, we're taking groups of three questions. So let me go upstairs um, where there was a hand over near you there. Where did it go? Nikki must have asked their question. Okay, we're going to have the second row here, the man in the blue jersey. Which side you're getting the microphone from? And we'll go next into the third row, and a woman just over near you here, so stay close. Uh, Thanks. Uh, I'm uh, Nick Bright. I work with uh, Duncan at Oxfam. Um, Thanks for three great talks and a really inspiring film. Um, I suppose linked to that question about how do you get inside the city hall. uh, So... The work we've done on inequality at Oxfam, we congratulate ourselves a lot and other people congratulate us on the 85 stat and the 62 stat and so on. And, and it turns out it's quite easy to get people to agree with us with our problem statement. And people go, right, you're, you're very right, that's really shocking. And then we find that the head of the IMF says she really agrees with us and the head of the World Bank really agrees with us. And we start finding people who are not our conventional historical allies say how very right we are. And it starts making me nervous that we're somehow all in agreement. Uh, And I think that's partly because we're in agreement on, you know, there is a problem and we're not doing enough to talk about what the solutions might be and what the solutions look like. And that's where it might turn out we still disagree a lot because maybe it isn't enough for us to be asking, and actually Nikki made a great point in her talk today, that there's a danger to trying to use a criminal justice system to achieve justice because it's an inherently unjust system. Uh, with deeply entrenched prejudice and bias within it, and, and maybe the same is true of a lot of our politics, maybe the same is true of that city hall. So my question is, how do we present those radical, positive visions of something that isn't just asking you know, turkeys to vote for Christmas, but is, is, is creating uh, a system that is, actually has the capability to be more fair uh, and more just? Okay, good. And we'll go right back here in the row behind him. Black sweater. Thank you. Um, thanks for a really compelling and engaging talk um, so far. Um, my question is, you touched on foreign, kind of the funding from, um, foreign, from the foreign sector for issues such as the ones in South Africa. But like with the apartheid, kind of engaging a huge international community and that actually causing pressure and causing change. Um, now with the problems in South Africa and with problems elsewhere, um, is there a place for that international kind of pressure and movement against those problems, um, or does it have? To, or is the pressure now only 
coming from those directly affected. That wasn't well worded. But. Okay, thanks. So, so we've got the three questions of the participation in the conventional institutions and whether this expansion really works and how it changes things, the, the issue of problems and solutions. And the issue here, do any of you want to claim the Nikki's question first off the bat? Well, I would just link Nikki's question with the last observation because Nikki said, how do you get your people in the room? And I kind of thought, how do do we get our people in the room? And I just kind of thought, you know, is it time to just bite the bullet and say this is internationalism? We're we're just going to go for international solidarity, not to dictate to activists on the ground in any particular scenario, but to to, to conceptualise these challenges and these struggles as part of our international um, struggle, rather than, you know, we each come and we, you know, present the challenge that we're facing in, in a poor community in London or in Cape Town or whatever, that we just think of it as a collective responsibility, though granted taking a lead from, from people at a, a community level. That's, that's kind of how I... And the, the point about um, unusual suspects and you've got you know, the World Bank and everybody agreeing with you, I, mean, I think it's a really good start if you've presented a, a problem so starkly that even those in power have to, have to agree with you. And I think you know, having unusual suspects and voices um, is a very important part of any successful campaign, isn't it? If you're going to part company later with the radical solution, well, never mind. Because you've already created the noise and the debate and the framing of the case and the argument. If you don't take everybody with you all the way, so what would be would be my my view? Do you want to go, I'm not going to answer the next question because that's, answer too, any that's question too internal you want. Oxfam thing. So that's yeah, fine. We are um, not having an intra-Oxfam debate here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take the last point, which is, um, is there still a place for the international movement? Because I think this is a really good question because th- I've got mixed feelings about this. So I didn't like Make Poverty History because it was stupid, right? It was clearly that the people who were going to make po- poverty history was not a bunch of white activists in Trafalgar Square. It was citizens and states and how they interact in developing countries. And I wrote a whole book about that. I was so annoyed by that demonstration. Um, uh, But I don't think that that means the international movement's redundant. It just has to be a bit cleverer and a bit more humble, right? So there are clearly some things which are global collective action problems like climate change where the international movement has a huge role. There are clearly some bad stuff which the rich countries are still doing, tax havens, arms control. Yeah, that's enough to be getting on with. Um, And then on the other stuff, it's about, it's much more, uh, there's a nice quote from a Filipino activist saying, what we need is, it's like we cook rice cakes. You need heat from the top and heat from the bottom, and that's how you make the perfect rice cake. And we need to be thinking, how do we combine the heat from above and the heat from below on different issues. And there, I think, there is a role for solidarity still, but let's not get too arrogant about how important we are because actually we're often really secondary to a lot of these struggles. Um, I think just um, on getting our people in the city council, it's sort of like a a catch-22 sort of thing because um, who would have thought that after 1994 when you get the ANC in government, things would still look like this. So you sort of... Um, you're betting on something that has a probability of being successful, but also has challenges. But I do think one way 
um, either that speaks to getting the right people in city council is to build leadership, whether with, with people inside or people in civil society, so that once people get those key positions, they sort of don't forget. A lot of the times they forget uh, the struggles, but you can hope that they don't forget once they get in. But I think there's still, um, if they're strong organizations, they can still try and hold them to account. So it's sort of like win, lose sometimes. Um, and I think with um, um, in foreign, or let me say not funding, but international um, sort of relationships. And for us, this has worked. Like, it helps sometimes to get new voices into the, the dialogue. Um, and certainly, it helps to have people who have integrity in the space. For example, when we did the budget work, obviously the city is not expecting somebody from a Kailicha who probably doesn't even have a high school education to be able to understand a thick document that is a budget. And so it's easy for them to dismiss when people come and say, well, these are the numbers. But because we got an international organization that has been working on these issues for years, that has even been advising government on budget issues, it sort of does um, you know, claim some credibility on the numbers. And, and they come out and say, well, we are the ones who help them with the numbers, and so you can't question. And we'll give you the data in terms of how we got to these numbers. So um, there is a lot of room for all those um, relationships, and there is sort of room for all those dialogues, because what, hap what organizations are doing in India and that an Indian government is really taking on board, for example, with social audits on how to hold government into account, certainly helps us promote the same method in South Africa to say, well, if the Indian government can do it, therefore South Africa can also adopt the same thing. So there's, there's, there's value in, in, in all those exchanges. But again, um, I think I share that it, how it's done, it should be done strategically to say um, and, and, and try to take into account the different contexts. Vanessa, is it fair in relation next question? So you've made your coalition pretty much a choice to campaign on solutions and not to engage so much in protest politics about the broader background issues without being able to point to things that, that could deliver, that could change transparency and budgeting or specific allocations or things? I think um, oh, that was the second question around solutions and problems. Um, it's also to take into account that we're coming from a context of people that are affected and what they care about is to address an immediate problem. Um, and, and so a lot of the the challenges we raise as challenges that um, of that communities experience, but in terms of how solutions work, we we do make a lot of recommendations based on what communities want, but that is not always a clear saying. Would say, we want, for example, with sanitation in the country, there's never been a policy that is looking at how informal settlements are actually. Um, services are delivered. And so it gives all governments, national government and provincial government, to actually not do anything. And so we've been pushing to say we want a policy um, that will look at one, two, three. But again, we're still respecting the role of government to say you need to develop that policy in a way that is inclusive of everyone. And so communities will know what they want, but there's technical skills and abilities that they would not necessarily have. So a lot of, our, of what we call for, we always call for strategic um, you know, uh, solutions, but it's not, it's always um, saying uh, this is open for engagement. You have your expertise in the space, but there's other people who are not necessarily in government that might have expertise in that regard. So a lot of the recommendations are always policies that are, that need meaningful engagement. So instead of, um, yeah. Okay, let's take another round of three questions. One after. 
um, up, and up top just on the aisle here. Remember to say who you are as you speak. Hi. So I don't, yeah, my name is Mark Dubois, and I, I'm an independent humanitarian consultant. Um, thank you all for, for a very, very interesting uh, set of discussion so far. And I guess my, my question is, I, I, you know, from a humanitarian background, we're working on uh, the, seeming, the seeming problem of impunity and the, the, the race to the bottom of uh, you know, violence against civilians. And it's one of those big problems like inequalities. And I guess my question is, you know, you, you've touched on it, uh, Duncan, a few minutes ago when you talk about the, you know, the, sort of the, the, the rice cake, you know, heat from the top, heat from the bottom. And uh, uh, Fameza, you talked about just now in terms of how you frame the issue. And I guess what I'm getting at is, can you say something more about how, uh, you know, problem analysis, problem definition, and, and, you know, causal logic of change that informs where you go in terms of your, you know, basically something I could steal and take back over to uh, the, 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 the problem of impunity. Okay. Um, let's go to the very back. There's someone just back, almost the back door. Thank you for your talks. Um, there's a question of everyone in the world doing something for themselves and in partnership with the government and all these large organizations and everyone. I've actually asked Judge Osborne and I've sent him a check for 366 pounds six months ago. He hasn't replied yet. So I'm going to send the next 366 pounds to the United Nations because we need one body to handle the world money that everybody can know where and who to ask questions in times of needs. Okay, and there's a gentleman in a brown jersey just in front of you there. Thank you. Um, I, I work for an asset manager, and I, I don't apologize for that. I think when you look 10 years ago, the asset management industry were not interested in social, <coughs> environmental, governance. And you look at it now, uh, and 36 of the top 40 asset managers are signed up to the UN principles of responsible investment. They've, ma they've made a step through the door into dealing with social issues, environmental issues, governance issues. And they did that because of the narrative. Uh, and you started um, today talking about the narrative, and then we sort of moved on to, to pressure and, and all of this. And I, I somehow think that the narrative is at least as important as the pressure, if not more so, because that's how the asset management industry is moving towards ESG. It's a f slightly flawed principles, but they're moving there. And, and the second thing I would say in terms of pressure is the asset managers don't manage their own money. They manage the money of asset owners. And asset owners manage the money of people like you and me. Most of the money that asset managers manage are pension money, life assurance money, and we have a say in that. Mm. So, so we can make a difference. So, got three questions again. Um, anyone? You want to reverse the order? You're willing to go first? Oh, you look like you're willing to go first. Don't do it. So, I'll take the first and, and third. Uh, you're welcome to take them as well. But, um, so, the first one, um, 
We don't have a systematic understanding of change. Um, therefore, when we talk about a theory of change, people mean completely different things by it. So what I'm working with a lot of people on is trying to systematize that a bit. And just two basic things. One is you have to understand the power in the room or in the, in the context. You need a good paranalysis of visible formal power, but also invisible informal power. Then you can talk about coalitions. Then you can talk about who you need to move in terms of interests. And then you can start thinking about a strategy. But until you've got a grasp of the power underneath any given issue, um, you're not, you're not going to get any, anything consistent. That's a bit abstract, but uh, the, the full version would take another hour. Um, then the final point, I think um, asset managers, I spent a lot of, I have spent quite a few years working with asset managers actually. Um, really interesting in terms of no one knows about them and, and people don't sort of target them, and they've made huge strides, and I think you're absolutely right. The narrative question is really interesting there. You know, there's a thing called fiduciary duty, which is you have a duty to manage money in the, you know, in the best interest of the people whose original money it is. And that has been interpreted in the past in a very short-termist way. You have to get the best quarterly returns. There's no reason why it should be defined like that, and there's an interesting attempt to redefine it to say, actually, if it's a pension fund, we want something to be there in 20 years' time, including the planet. And that's actually been a really interesting uh, way where uh, a discussion on narrative has had really serious implications for a massive sector of the economy in terms of how they understand their role. So I think really interesting stuff there. Uh, I think there's a concept called the policy funnel, where, which is really interesting. I nicked it from a guy called Michael Jacobs, where sort of at the early stage of an issue, it's all about framing. You know, that's when you go out and you say climate change is not just about polar bears. It's about people too. You know, we spent years doing that. Once you get it onto the public agenda, it starts narrowing down. You start talking about laws, policies, spending, and you have different tactics if you're trying to influence those than if you're trying to get something onto the agenda. So I think it's not an either-or between narrative and, and wonkery, but you need to know where you are in the policy funnel and not choose the wrong tactic. Um, yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that. You, you often win the argument by being the person that framed the argument. Um, you know... I, I'm sort of recovering lawyer. Um, no, actually, you never recover. You just go into remission periodically. If you, you, um, and, you know, you always wanted to, at the bar, you always wanted your skeleton argument to be the one that the judge put on top of the pile and to, and to take the issues um, from your skeleton argument. And you've half, you've half won. And with campaigning, too, I, 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 I found this. We... Um, after 9-11, there was Guantanamo on one side of the Atlantic and there was Belmarsh Prison on the other side of the Atlantic where suspects were being detained without police interview, let alone charge or trial indefinitely. You know, do not pass go, do not collect £500 um, from your asset manager or anybody else. Just go straight to Belmarsh Prison. And, and we called that policy internment because it was. The, the government of the day called it... Um, a, immigration detention because all the people were foreigners it was immigration detention pending a deportation that would never come because these people were undeportable because they'd be tortured back home and the government was outraged that we called this internment because we were conjuring we were conjuring a narrative from the troubles in northern ireland and a policy that had failed there and everybody now every reasonable historian and politician understood that that was a failed policy um, it was outrageous that we should use that word but we did we did again and again and again in the press in the courts and you know everywhere else on tv and by the time that case got to the house of lords even uh, lord goldsmith then the attorney general was using the word internment 
and we won. So you're so right about language and, and you know, in campaigning, you know, this is, this is, you know, George Orwell was right, you know, politi- the politics of the English language. Um, and as to your, um, um, we can all make a difference with our pensions and with our, you know, um, we can if we understand, we can if we actually understand the Byzantine arrangements and complex financial instruments, and I'm not, I'm not sure that we do, I'm not sure that I do. How is it possible that uh, someone can run off with the pension funds and, 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 and all of those employees don't get that? How, how is that possible? You know, we don't. So yes, we should take responsibility, but we kind of probably need to be better educated as well. Um, and, a, and a light needs to be shone still, I think, on, um, on financial services and financial arrangements in this country. Okay. Yeah, don't want to pass on that. Let me note, since we had a question, let me just make sure there's a partial answer. One of the challenges, I think, that we face is we have a structure of global inequalities, problems that show up affecting people all over, and we don't have a comparable structure of global agency to act on it or of global forums for discussing it and addressing it so that, that we face a mismatch. So in trying to be internationalist, as, as Shami's urged us, one of the issues is that, that we have a shortage of effective institutions um, sometimes to appeal to for this, and we can, their work can go there. I wanted to add a, a quick comment while I'm speaking to um, the, the comment about asset managers, which is one of the things that's important in thinking about inequalities is that not all inequalities will be corrected by material redistributions, um, which means both that there are some issues, say inequalities that many of the inequalities that bear on sexual orientation or something like that. The action is not a material redistribution of wealth, but it may be a very important action. And sometimes the wealthy may be allies and agents of that action in saying we're not going to hold events in North Carolina when it passes stupid laws or whatever particular um, version it is. So worth having on the agenda. Do you have the patience for one last round? Okay, we're going to have one last round. Uh, we'll start here in the center. It's a woman, blonde woman with her hand up there. Can you see her? Yeah. Hold your hand up. Try to make your questions short because we're going over time. Very well. Uh, directed mainly for Mesa, but thank you all very much. I was one of the lucky LSE students who was here when Nelson Mandela came into this building. And we were all in tears. I feel like crying now. At the thought of the end of apartheid and the difference the ANC was going to make. And then tonight I saw your film. Now I'm very uneducated about how things have progressed or not progressed in South Africa since then. I try to stay abreast of these things, but we get distorted. Um, stories about how things are going. But in that film, I saw what seemed to me the same faces in your provincial council. Now, I know that the uneducated poor cannot put themselves forward, but you seem to have enough very well-educated activists. Why are you not there making the decisions and allocating the funds fairly. When I say you, I'm talking about the activists. Um, It's very, very sad. Okay. Uh, Gentleman back here, red. Um, The last one. Yeah, last one will be up there. The gentleman with the beard. 
Uh, hello, hi. Um, that was fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Rob Anderson. I'm from an organisation called Cambridge House. We're a social justice organisation based just over the river. I've got a quick question, which is quite specific to the UK context, but it's uh, just picking up on a couple of observations made by Shami and Professor Calhoun regarding um, the diversification of income for organisations to make sure that you're not in anybody's pockets but also about preserving a sense of radicalism within organizations so that when you're campaigning for change, you're preserving authenticity, etc. Now, given the way the funding environment for UK organizations have changed over the last six years, essentially since 2010, you've got um, an increasingly large number of small organizations scrabbling for essentially an oversubscribed set of trusts and foundations, which increasingly to get notice requires the support of professional fundraisers and bid writers. Um, also, at the same time, you have the impact of legislation like the lobbying bill. Yeah. How do you see essentially non-profits or third sector organizations fighting against this tie to strangle or to restrict the voice of yeah. third sector and NGO organizations in the UK to impact social change? Okay. The last one's up there. Is there a way of framing inequality in a way that appeals to right-wing politician sensitivities, and is it necessary to get the support Okay. All right. In the interest of time, since we're running low, I'm going to try to assign you questions. And I'm going to assign you, predictably, the question about limits to change in South Africa. Um, I think um, if one might have noticed in the view, there's a lot of young people that are working with the SJC. And I think that is the, everyone is actually frustrated with the fact that when um, the ANC took over, everyone had this grand vision of what would happen and, you know, the difference in people's lives. And I think earlier today we did hear about some of the policies that were implemented to sort of try and redistribute um, um, or try and not make people equal, but try, in a sense, to make sure that the people who are previously disadvantaged do get some key services. But the most frustrating thing is the impact of that, and I think we heard a lot about it earlier. And... A lot of young people um, now, they're actually getting more frustrated because they don't see any difference. And then you see a lot of the older generations and people that might have been around during apartheid and people that might have been around during transition, a lot of our parents. And they still, which is interesting, they are as frustrated as young people, but they're still more sympathetic to the ANC and, and understanding um, that there are challenges and the challenges may be one day they'll be overcome. But you see a lot of frustration coming out from young people. But also thinking, is the, do, thinking, do people, you know, going into council is one different thing than fighting outside with people that share your vision. And do really people inside the council also understand the difference between political party and governance? And I think this is something uh, probably that needs to be looked at, that if I am in the city council, am I really doing my work as a government official or am I doing my work as a political party representative? And I think a lot of the times we have all of these mixed that people can't speak against injustices because they're protecting their own political parties. And I think this is something in the long run we need to talk about. But in terms of frustrations, the frustrations are really arising and you can look at the number of violent protests that have come up. Also frustrations against the government, but if you look at, for example, people might have seen it, what happened in Marikana, where miners were shot down for, for protests, and a lot of the people that are taking the backlash is the government, and no one is talking about the private 
um, you know, investors that are really benefiting from the money. You know, that the accountability of both government and private sector um, is treated differently. And so we need to break all of that because it's dangerous in a way because we'll continue blaming the people who are trying to challenge those inequalities but at the same time not understanding what the underlying problems are. And I do not expect a person, my mother, or a person who doesn't even have a higher education to understand how do we even get to these uh, problems, which are a symptom of the bigger problem. I think it was interesting for me to listen how other people think about it. So it's, in that context, for us, it's really frustrating. And, we see, and, and, and I think seeing how a lot of people are really willing to go to the streets to raise their concerns, but also raise it in political platforms within their own political parties, but using other avenues that are available within the council to raise those issues. Because you sort of have to use um, a combination of different strategies to get um, this you know, all the challenges being spoken about. Would you consider going into politics? Personally, I think I'd be frustrated, but because I've seen how they deal with people who raise issues that are real. And I think that is why, personally, I, I, I've actually moved away from that idea. And I think if I were to move into politics, it would be... Um, I have this idea that we should move to, and I know other countries do it differently, that we should move to more, you know, who leads the country must be about individuals and individual accountability rather than just political party accountability. And the problem now is if you get to politics, specifically in our context, you need to agree with a certain political party. And currently, I don't really agree with either. I think they're all a problem. And, and I think they're all the same, and I think they all treat um, issues that come out the same. And I think until we address that, until we, we understand that if I'm this political party, this is the political party, when it comes to governance, I need to do what I'm supposed to be doing. How about you, Shami? You're no longer the director of an organization bound by the rules of the Charity Act. <laughs> well, um, or would you rather answer the question about how to stay radical in an era of fundraisers? <laughs> No, I'll, I'll, ask, I'll answer whatever you put to me. Um, I, I, I had your sort of instinct for most of my adult life, which is, um, you know, civil society activism is a, a noble um, place to be, you can, which it is, and there's good work to be done there, and there's good things to be achieved, and you don't have to toe anybody's line, and you don't have to... Um, but I've recently got to the point where I think, sod it, time to get your hands dirty. My neighbours are going to food banks, and that's not a civil liberties issue, and so I am one of the newest members of the Labour Party. Um, and so they... And I've got this poison chalice of this, you know... You know so I'm, the, I'm sort of the newest, I'm the newest member, but also, I don't know, I kind of count... I don't know, let's not go there. Um, I've got this little local difficulty to examine there. Um, on, the income, on the income point and, and government silencing civil society, not in South Africa but here in this great unbroken democracy that we call the UK, I think governments have, um, have different tactics for um, silencing dissent in civil society. I can remember I was a Home Office civil servant um, when there was a changeover in '97. You're possibly too young to remember this, but things apparently were only going to get better. And, uh, um, 
and, 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 and the tactic, um, and maybe it wasn't even a malign tactic, but the, the way that the new Labour government um, engaged with NGOs and charities at that time was a kind of call me Tony, call me Jack, call me, um, the, the kind of reaching out kind of thing, um, which, is, which is fine. And some really good things came out of that, some really important equality legislation, etc., came out of that kind of relationship where everybody's mates. But some things didn't go so well, um, um, to say the least, on refugee protection and the toxic politics of immigration, and the list goes on. But during that period, a lot of um, mon- a lot of charities and campaigning organisations got into service delivery. Mm. Right. So you take the dollar. Right. You take the dollar from your mates in government because there's un- you know there's services that do need to be provided to people, and you're going to do it. But it's very, very tricky, I think, in big charity or small charity or any kind of civil society to be taking government contracts but also holding the government to account. So that became a sort of silencing um, mechanism um, in, in, in the longer term. And then you have the coalition government, and now we have a conservative government. And now we're not doing it, in, we're not silencing civil society in subtle ways anymore. We are slashing legal aid for overtly political reasons, and we've got this hideous lobbying legislation legislation which is about silencing um, you know, organizations like his and my former organization and, uh, and others Even and, this one. And, the, and the answer to and the, yeah quite the extremism agenda it goes on it's an overt it's an overt attack on democratic dissent um, and it has to be taken on and that legislation needs to go in my view and we should campaign it's, it's, and that's my view you know and, and we should fight it and it seems boring and technical and so they get away with it and they, they have very long titles for, for the most insidious, insidious legislation but you know we really do need to campaign to, to, to claw back some, some, some freedoms for, for charities, NGOs, trade unions um, and so on I think Here, here. So, Duncan, on anything, but also concluding thoughts on the framing question. Well, the right, so inequality in the right wing. I was going to take that one. You see, I've spent quite a lot of my time in um, activism working with right wingers. Um, and I periodically get, make a complete idiot of myself um, uh, by not seeing the person who's in front of me, but, but saying this person is a target, this person is a government, this person is a private sector, and then treating them in, the, in, a, in a sort of crass way. And actually, there's a great quote from a woman called Donella Meadows, which is that uh, activists need to learn to dance with the system. And right now, if you want to understand the system to, in order to influence it, you need to understand how people who we might call right-wing think. What kind of right-winger are they? Are they actually a liberal? They just don't believe in the big collective stuff? Um, are they actually a nasty populist? Um, uh, I didn't you say they were nasty. With, uh, you don't want to work with? I mean, there are lots of different kinds, but I think some of the areas you can work with right-wingers on are rights. You know, right-wingers believe in rights, actually, quite a lot of them. Yeah, um, their own rights. Rights for free-born Englishmen, but nothing for foreigners. Not a true right-winger. Not a true right-winger. I think everybody should read The Economist and try and work out what the hell's going on politically with the people, with the stuff they're reading, because I think The Economist is really interesting. Because if you think of it superficially, sometimes they're left-wing, sometimes they're right-wing. If you think of it consistently, they're consistently right-wing liberal. And that's actually, I think, the people you can work with. Um, Fairness, I think, okay, 
depends on the right winger, but fairness. Um, I think we have to get away. We, you know, we've been talking about inequality here. The one thing you mustn't let yourself get trapped in is we're just talking about equality of opportunity here. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't had that. It's great that we haven't talked about that all day. But the idea that the, the height of equality is that we've all got the uh, uh, permission to have breakfast in the Ritz, yeah. um, you know, that's really not a much of an achievement. So, so moving on from equality of opportunity, that is something we have to do. But I think there's lots of things we can do with people in different parts of the political spectrum on these issues of inequality and fairness. This has been a terrific discussion, which is why I let it go on late. Thank you all for being here. You've all applauded Shami Chakrabarti. I'd like to mention her book is for sale outside. You can buy it, and she will thank you by signing it, and you can thank her by reading it. And the proceeds go to liberty, not to me, so before we you know, make any jokes about equality. and Fair enough. <laughs> Join me in thanking our panelists.